Chapter 18. The Poor Tithe The poor tithe was to be paid once every three years. It was to be paid from all of the increase of this third year. It was to be laid up within the local community and paid to the local Levite, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. The poor were to come to a community feast, and they, quote, shall eat and be satisfied. Deuteronomy 14:29. The payment of this tithe would bring God's blessing upon his people and upon all the work of their hands. Deuteronomy 14, 28-29. 16:12-15. No one was exempt from the payment of this tithe. Everyone who had an increase was required to pay all of the three tithes. The reason that the Levites were required to be remembered was discussed when the rejoicing tithe was examined. Briefly, we can recall that they were required to be remembered because they were the living symbols of religion and law in the theocracy. Since no area was to be viewed by the Israelites as being apart from the word of God, the Israelites were required to remember the Levites with a portion of this tax. This would impress upon their hearts and minds the juridical principles incorporated in the poor tithe. The purpose underlying the remembrance of the stranger was also examined under the rejoicing tithe. The rendering of aid to those strangers, or unbelievers, who were not openly or consciously hostile to the faith, was one of the means by which the Israelites could spread the word of God. Aid delivered to those who are responsible and in need is one of the oldest and most effective means for evangelizing religion. Those who are responsible seldom forget the aid that others rendered in times of poverty or emergency. Although they may never endorse nor believe the religion that provided for them, they seldom become hostile to it. In fact, they are often the biggest non-religious defenders of such a faith. Such aid is truly an effective means for neutralizing hostility to religion and law, even if it should not win actual converts. For this reason, the various cults, such as the Mormons, make it a practice to render aid to those who are truly in need and yet are not members of their cult. By doing so, they build a broad support for their concepts of religion and law within general society. Moreover, remembering the stranger with a portion of the rejoicing and poor tithes was one of the means by which God impressed upon the Israelites their deliverance from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage. Their remembrance of the stranger was to remind them of their own sojourn as strangers in Egypt. It was to remind them of their own deliverance from sin and corruption. As God had loved them as strangers, so were they to love the strangers in their midst. They were to apply the word of God to them, remembering them at the Feast of Tabernacles, and aiding them in their poverty. By so doing, they would be God's means for delivering strangers from the house of bondage. This points out the fact that the Israelites were not to simply preach sin and repentance as the means for spreading the faith. They were to spread the word of God to every area of life and thought by applying the word of God to every area of life and thought. The law of God was the Israelites' appointed means by which the faith was to be evangelized. Deuteronomy 10, 17-19 The poor tithe was to be used for orphans and widows because God is a, quote, father of the fatherless and judge of the widows. Psalm 68, 5 The fact that this tax was to be used for those who had lost the principal breadwinner in the family reveals a principle incorporated in this tithe. In scripture, those who are widows and orphans are seen as those who are without adequate protection and care. To be either is seen as being helpless. Since they are helpless, God has appointed himself as their protector and guardian. Quote, 
Ye shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If thou afflict them in any wise, and they cry at all unto me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath shall wax hot, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Exodus 22, 22-24 Widows and orphans are especially helpless members of society because of their lack of a husband and father. If neither has another principal source of income, other than the daily care of the deceased head of the household, then they are particularly helpless in regard to financial support. This lack of continuing economic support means chronic poverty unless they are given aid periodically. This was one of the functions of the poor tithe in ancient Israel. By aiding the fatherless and the widow at specific intervals, the Israelites would prevent the appearance of the problems of chronic and debilitating poverty. It is true, of course, that they would tend to remain poor. But there is a major distinction between being a poor member of an affluent society and existing in a perpetual state of chronic and destructive poverty. In addition, such aid would prevent the breakup of the family unit as a result of the lack of adequate financial support. Since aid would be forthcoming at periodic intervals, the family could expect to stay together if they were able to supplement such aid with other sources of income. This in turn would provide social stability for society as a whole since the preservation and furtherance of society rests upon the family. From the foregoing, we can recognize one of the principles incorporated in this tax. This tax was to be used for widows and orphans whose economic conditions would degenerate into chronic poverty without outside assistance. Since God sees these two classes of persons as epitomizing helplessness, we can recognize that this tax was aimed not at relieving widows and orphans per se, but of those conditions that would tend to create chronic and debilitating poverty. The widows and orphans were not merely the poor of Israel. They were those who had no prospects whatsoever of any improvement in their material conditions. Only abject poverty could be their end, since no continuing financial support would be forthcoming to provide for adequate education, medical treatment, or other necessities of life. Hence, the principal aim of the poor tithe was for the relief of those whose condition would tend toward oppressive and destructive poverty. This principle can be more readily understood if we recognize that poor loans, rather than the poor tithe, were to be the means by which the generally poor of society were to be taken care of in Israel. These poor loans were basically emergency loans for the relief of emergency conditions. Since they were non-interest bearing and were to be forgotten on the sabbatical year, they were the means for relieving temporary conditions of poverty. Deuteronomy 15, 7-11. But those whose conditions tended toward chronic and permanent poverty were to be given periodic and substantial assistance by the Lord's poor tithe. The poor tithe, therefore, should not be confused with poor loans. Each is aimed at different types of economic and social conditions in regard to the relief of the poor in Israel. The poor tithe was to be used by, quote, the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow, which are within thy gates. Deuteronomy 14, 29. The purpose behind this requirement was discussed when Levitical taxation was examined. Briefly, local giving was required because such giving presupposed that the taxpayer knew local conditions. Therefore, he would be without excuse if he failed to administer this tithe. He was to know the character of the people who were to, to receive his taxes. The taxpayer is held personally responsible to God for how and to whom his poor tithe is administered. For this reason, St. Paul could collect sums from the Corinthians for relief of poverty at Jerusalem, even though this was not local giving to local persons. 1 Corinthians 16, 
This tithe was also required to be distributed at a local feast. The purpose for this was to prevent either the tithe payer or the recipient from being anonymous. Those who paid this tithe were, were to be known by the community and the poor. Those who received this tithe were to be known by the taxpayer and the community. This would exert social pressure upon all those in the community who had an increase to pay this tithe. Their failure to appear at the local yearly feast or their failure to bring the poor tithe would bring upon their heads social criticism and ostracism. This criticism would be especially severe from the more godly members of the community since the failure to pay this tax would be viewed by them as being an equivalent of robbing, robbing God. Malachi 3, 8-10 The recipients of this tax were to be known because the taxpayer was personally responsible before the Lord for his administration of this tax. He was to know the true conditions that would tend to chronic poverty among the poor of the community. This in turn would exert social pressure upon those who desired to receive these funds. They would tend to examine their motives for desiring these funds. Because they were not anonymous, they could not hide from social criticism and ostracism if they were not worthy to receive such aid. This would in turn act as a break upon those members of society who desired to live off the productive citizens of the theocracy. The public distribution of this tax to the poor would tend to prevent the development of a permanent class of welfare recipients who viewed welfare as a legitimate means for evading the responsibility of supporting themselves by their own efforts. The principle underlying the distribution of the poor tithes at a local feast is that no one is to be anonymous. Social pressure and custom are legitimate means for enforcing the word of God on all members and classes within society. Failure by the state and the institutional church to recognize this basic principle in the distribution of welfare and aid is leading to the destruction of modern society. It has allowed the development within society and the church of a permanent class of reprobates who believes that welfare is a right rather than a blessing of God. The anonymous giving of funds to the, quote, poor, either via state welfare checks in the mail or by friendly pastoral visits to the homes of those receiving church aid is a violation of the law of God. Neither the taxpayer nor the poor are to remain anonymous. One of the purposes of this tithe, as with all the tithes, was that it was a means for developing community and fellowship among all the various elements and classes within the theocracy. Anonymous giving and receiving are destructive of this principle. They actually destroy community because they discourage the giving of this tithe and encourage the reprobate by making it easier for them to obtain these funds. Godly men are not to hide their light, their obedience to the word of God, under a bushel basket. Community and fellowship cannot be established upon the darkness of anonymity. It must be built and developed upon the light of this world, which is Jesus Christ and his revelation. Moreover, this tithe was not to be paid each year, but every third year. It was not to be laid up in a local tithe barn and then distributed over those years in which the tithe was not paid. If God had wanted a yearly giving of this tithe, he would have required that the Israelites give a smaller portion each year rather than a tenth once every third year. The principle behind this requirement is in keeping with the positive or constructive character of God's law. Of course, the requirement that this tithe be paid only once every third year does help to prevent the permanent welfare class from developing. It acts as a restraint upon those who would desire to be fed from the public largesse on a more regular basis. But the emphasis of this requirement is constructive rather than restraining. One of the surest means of enslaving another person is through dependence. If this tithe were given on a regular monthly or yearly schedule, it would generally prove to be an enslaving device for man. 
This is true because as a person began to accept this tax on a regular short-term schedule, he would tend to become dependent upon it as his principal source of income. The shorter the intervals between payments, the more he would tend to think in terms of these short-term time periods. The more he tended to think in terms of these short periods, the more he would tend to ignore the future. As he gradually began to ignore the future, he would become more and more present-oriented. He would ever so gradually come to think and act solely in terms of the existential moment. Because the moment would be supreme, he would divorce himself from any future-oriented goal. He would cease to plan for his own future. He would be unable to plan, think, or act beyond his next welfare payment. He would then become totally dependent upon the agency that provided for his income. This is one of the major characteristics of our modern welfare-oriented society. Few persons who have received monthly welfare for any extended period of time are any longer capable of taking care of themselves. They have become completely present-oriented and live from one welfare check to the next. They are lacking in the ability to plan for the future because their future is regulated and controlled by regular short-term payments of money. This has made them slaves to the state since they are dependent upon it for their financial support. This is one of the reasons that the welfare state invariably becomes existential. This present-oriented nature of the welfare state always brings death to society since no society can exist apart from planning for the future. Men simply cannot live without goals. The Lord's poor tithe prevents this from occurring. It does not encourage dependency, but actually encourages the opposite. It promotes a future orientation in the management of personal financial affairs. This encourages the person who receives this tithe to become self-reliant. This stems from the requirement that this tithe is to be paid only once every third year. This means that in those years that this tax is not paid, the chronic poor have no source of income other than what is available for the general poor of society. This forces the chronic poor to become future-oriented. It makes them learn to manage the funds that they receive from this one tithe year over several years' duration. Instead of creating a class of dependent welfare reprobates, this tax is actually an aid for promoting the chronic poor to become efficient managers of their financial affairs. It encourages them to think and act in terms of a future. Such future orientation is the stimulus which encourages them to develop the means by which they can improve their material prosperity over time. The poor tithe is never destructive of personal character, nor of society. Even if a person cannot become self-sufficient enough to stop taking this tithe, he will not become an existential reprobate. He will not, because he will still have to be future-oriented in order to provide for himself during those years that he does not receive aid. The poor tithe is the only means by which the chronic poor can be systematically aided by society without destroying either the recipient of such aid or the society in which he lives. The principle of this tithe is that no one is to be destroyed because of their poverty. The chronic poor are not to be allowed to become either a menace to themselves or to society. The aid that they receive is to strengthen their character as well as to improve their economic condition. The poor tithe is the only means by which society can aid the chronic poor and continue to ensure social stability. The principles incorporated in this tithe can be understood as the following. 1. That this tax is to be used to relieve chronic conditions of poverty. 2. That it is also to be used to evangelize the faith among non-believers. 3. That both the taxpayer and the recipients of this tithe are not to remain anonymous. Both are to be known by the community even if that community should be confined to a local church. 
4. A small sum from this tax is to be paid to the ministers of God's word in order to impress upon all those concerned the fact that no area of life is divorced from the law of God. And 5. That this tax is to be paid to the chronic poor in lump sums and between long intervals of time. This is to strengthen the character of the poor and prevent the development of a permanent and dangerous welfare class within society. Poor Loans God views borrowing as a sign of subjection and lending as an act of dominion. The man or nation that borrows is a servant to the lender, while those who lend are seen as rulers of the borrowers. Quote, the rich ruleth over the poor, and the borrower is servant to the lender. Proverbs 22.7 Those who heed God's laws will be blessed by God. Quote, and thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. And the Lord shall make thee the head and not the tail. And thou shalt be above only, and thou shalt not be beneath. Deuteronomy 28, 12-13 But those who fail to obey the word of God will become subject to the ungodly. Quote, the stranger that is within thee shall get up above thee very high, and thou shalt come down very low. He shall lend to thee, and thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. Verses 43-44 Lending and borrowing are one of the means by which men can rule or be ruled. Those who lend are seeking the exercise of dominion over those who would borrow from them. Those who borrow are seeking slavery through their indebtedness to others. The Bible is clear on this issue. The godly are to, quote, Owe no man anything but to love one another. For he that loveth another hath fulfilled the law. Romans 13.8 The Bible is critical of borrowing because it is one of the means by which men are made slaves. Since Christ has freed the godly from the house of bondage, no godly man is to return to slavery through debt. The godly men of society are to be the rulers of society. They are to see their calling in Christ as one in which they are to continually reinvest their capital returns in order to constantly expand God's name into every area of life and thought. For this reason, in principle, they are to understand that they are to be, to be lenders and capital investors rather than debtors. It must be understood that Scripture does not prohibit indebtedness in principle, what it does is to reveal the end result of borrowing, which is slavery. Indebtedness is not prohibited because man can either be a slave to God or a slave to man. All men, whether saved or lost, are required by the word of God to understand that they are his slaves. They are indebted to God for their creation in his image and their knowledge of his laws that rule man and his world. They are, in other words, in debt to God for their lives and for all his blessings. Since they are debtors to God, they should not become debtors to man. Moreover, because they are debtors to God, they must pay God his due. They must use their lives and its blessings in accordance with the terms of his covenant. They must obey the word of God. We can understand, then, why Scripture does not prohibit indebtedness in principle. All men are debtors to the triune God of Scripture for all things. There are men, however, who do not view themselves as being debtors to God. They do not believe that they must live in terms of his law. Such persons tend to become lawless and undisciplined in proportion to their desire to be free from debt to the Lord. For this reason, God approves of their indebtedness to man. If men refuse to be ruled by the law of God, then they must be ruled by the law of man. Borrowing by such men will ensure that their lives will be regulated and controlled by their creditors. This discipline of debt provides for some form of social stability because the creditors will establish the laws or rules that the debtors must obey if they wish to borrow 
and or retain their material goods. Debt, in such circumstances, is a check upon the undisciplined and lawless nature of ungodly men and is, in reality, a blessing of God. But this is, this is not to be the condition of godly men. Godly men are not to be undisciplined and lawless men. Every area of their lives is to be circumscribed and ruled by the word of God. They are not to borrow because they are not to be debtors to man and controlled by man's law. They, not the ungodly elements of society, are to be the rulers of society. Hence, they must be the creditors of society. By doing so, they can evangelize their faith by forcing the undisciplined borrowers of society to become externally obedient to the law of God. Godly men are to establish godly rule over every area of society. One of the means that God has appointed for achieving this end is through the willingness of ungodly men to borrow. Lasting social stability and the continuing advancement of society is dependent upon godly men staying out of debt and being the creditors of society. This is true because only the law of God can provide for social harmony and cultural advancement. If the creditors of society are ungodly men and the borrowers are godly men, then the ungodly will rule over the godly by their own law. Such rule will lead to the slavery of man and the enhancement of sin as a ruling principle of life. This will lead to social chaos and the destruction of society. And this is exactly the situation within today's society. Ungodly creditors are more than willing to provide funds for ungodly movies, business enterprises, and the like. Sin abounds because ungodly creditors are imposing their conception of law upon all of society. Because Christians have abandoned the world to the devil and have become net borrowers within society rather than creditors, they have virtually no control over the secular world. There can be no remedy for the present destruction of society until Christians acknowledge the principle that nothing is to be ruled apart from the word of God. They must recognize that God's law rules economic and financial matters as well as personal and family affairs. If society is to be preserved and cultural advancement continued, then Christians must become the creditors and controllers of society. In principle, Christians are to be creditors rather than debtors. But there are times when borrowing cannot be avoided. In Israel, these loans were basically for emergency relief of emergency conditions. They were required to be given to a poor brother, but not necessarily to a poor foreigner. Deuteronomy 15, 7-11 Failure by a person who was financially successful to grant such a loan raised the question of whether he had the love of God in his heart. 1 John 3:17. This again shows that a man can tell the tree by the fruit that it bears. Matthew 7, 15-20 these loans were to expire on the sabbatical year, whether they were paid or not. However, the nearness of the sabbatical year was not to be of any consideration in the granting of such a loan. Deuteronomy 15, 1-11 Moreover, no interest or increase was to be taken on this loan, nor was the security for this loan to be taken from the borrower if he needed it for his livelihood or his health. Exodus 22, 25-27 Leviticus 25, 36-38, Deuteronomy 24, 6, 10-14. These loans for emergency conditions were basically poor loans. This can be understood from the fact that these loans were required to be granted by the Israelites to those who were poor and in need. Leviticus 25, 35-38, Deuteronomy 15, 1-11. These loans were to be sufficient to cover the emergency needs that the poor might have. Such loans were required to be given to a poor brother 
but did not have to be granted to a poor foreigner or stranger. Deuteronomy 23, 19-20 A brother was defined as a believer and a stranger as a non-believer. This can be seen from the fact that the Israelites were required to lend to a brother even if he should be a stranger or a sojourner. Leviticus 25.35 We can understand, then, that faith, not race, nationality, or the like, was one of the criteria which was to be met for approval of such loans. But mere profession of faith would not be sufficient evidence to determine whether a person was a true brother or not. The mere profession of faith without works is dead. James 2.18 Hence, such a profession is no assurance that a person is a member of the covenant. Those who were approached for such loans in Israel could only tell the borrower's faith by his deeds, just as a man can tell a tree by the fruit that it bears. This means that such loans were based upon the borrower's past performance and the keeping of the covenantal law of God. No better indication of his faith, character, and integrity could be gathered than that of his ability to practice the word of God. Faith, then, can be understood as the first criteria that the borrower had to meet in order to qualify for a poor loan. Poor loans were to be granted to those who were, quote, poor by thee. Exodus 22:25. The principle here is that no one was to impoverish himself or his family in order to aid others. Decapitalizing oneself was not the means by which the poor were to be assisted. Those who were poor were to be aided by those who could afford it. This means that the burden of granting loans to those in need tended to fall upon the wealthier members of the theocracy. Those who had this world's goods were to open their hand wide unto the poor, quote, and shalt surely lend him sufficient for his need in that which he wanteth. Deuteronomy 15.8 Failure to grant such a loan by someone who had the means to do so revealed his lack of love for God. 1 John 3.17 It was not a question of whether he loved God or not. If he loved the Lord, he would strive to keep all his commandments and statutes. He would lend for the Lord's sake even to those whom he counted as his enemies. Luke 6.27 and 30 he would be loving his enemies since he would be fulfilling God's law in regard to poor loans. Romans 13, 8 and 10. This in turn would reveal that he loved God more than he loved himself since he placed God's command to love the brethren above his own likes and dislikes. The requirement that such loans be granted to even those who are counted as enemies does not mean that any poor brother would be eligible for a poor loan upon demand. Since faith, as expressed in obedience to God's law, was of prime consideration for the granting of such a loan, the person who sought a loan had to prove that he was responsible and trustworthy. He had to demonstrate that he was not simply attempting to obtain funds that he had no intention of repaying. Psalm 37.21 This he could do only by revealing his personal finances and obligations, plus the reason for the need for the loan. In other words, those who sought a poor loan had to establish credit for such a loan. This credit, however, was not to be established in terms of his ability to repay, but in terms of his personal character. For example, was the person poor and in need because of his own foolish and irresponsible behavior or not? Did he have a history of borrowing and not repaying? Did he attempt to seek dominion by the proper use of his income, or was he simply a spendthrift? Was the need for this emergency loan a result of his own general lack of character and unwillingness to live by the word of God, or was it a result of some general problem that was not necessarily of his own making? Credit for poor loans was not to be established upon the ability of the person to repay, but upon whether or not he acted as a covenantal man. If the borrower feared God and kept his commandments, 
then he was eligible for, the, for a loan. If not, then he was not eligible for a loan. He was not, since it would simply be another means by which he could avoid the responsibility of providing for himself and his family. Also, those who aided the irresponsible poor would be violating the intent of this law. The purpose of the law of the poor loan was not to confirm a man in his sin, but was to provide for emergency relief for emergency conditions. Thus, we can understand that credit or eligibility for poor loans was to be established by the ability and desire of the borrower to live as a godly man. No interest of any kind was to be taken from a poor loan to a brother. Quote, Thou shalt not lend upon usury to thy brother, usury of money, usury of victuals, usury of anything that is lent. Deuteronomy 23.19 Interest could be taken from a foreigner for any type of loan made, but usury could not be taken on a poor loan to a believer. Exodus 22.25, Leviticus 25.35-38, Deuteronomy 23.19-20 It should be understood that Scripture does not condemn usury per se, that is, the taking of interest or increase on loans from either a believer or a non-believer. The only condemnation of usury in Scripture is when interest is taken on a poor loan to a brother. The reason that usury is not condemned in Scripture is because without an increase on capital, dominion and the subduing of the earth by man would be impossible. This can be seen from God's original creation of Adam and his command to him that he was to have dominion and subdue the earth. Genesis 1, 26-28 Adam could not have obeyed this command if he could not have increased his spiritual, intellectual, and material capital. Without an increase or interest upon his original knowledge and goods, Adam could not have gone beyond his original creation. He would have been stuck in the permanent rut. Therefore, in principle, he had to have the ability to obtain an increase in every area of life and thought if he was to subdue every area of life and thought to the glory of God. Hence, we can understand that the Bible does not condemn usury, for this would be a contradiction of God's call that man have dominion and subdue the earth. In regard to poor loans, interest could not be taken from a brother, but could be taken from a foreigner or stranger. The foreigner was viewed differently from a brother, since the stranger had no desire to be ruled by the word of God. Thus, interest could be taken from him as a means of forcing his compliance to the word of God. Loans to foreigners, for whatever cause, were one of God's appointed means by which Israel was to establish godly rule over every area of life and thought. Interest, therefore, could be taken from pagans as a means for furthering this end and forcing them to accept godly rule and law. In addition to not being able to take interest from a brother, neither was an Israelite to take a pledge or security for a loan if that security was needed for a man's health or livelihood. Exodus 22, 25-27, Deuteronomy 24, 6, and 10, 14. This means that the basic essentials of life, such as food, clothing, and shelter, and the tools, etc., that a man used in earning his living, could not be taken by the creditor. Such items could only be secured by the creditor when they were not in use by the debtor. This would prevent the debtor from borrowing on the same item twice. Also, if a debtor was unable to pay back this loan before the sabbatical year, then this loan was to be canceled and forgotten by the creditor. Deuteronomy 15, 1-11 but the stranger was not exempt in either case. His pledge could be taken, and he was not released from his debt on the sabbatical year. Again, this was one of God's means by which the godly were to rule over the ungodly. Proverbs 22.7 Loans were to be one of the means by which dominion could be exercised. It should be emphasized that the poor loan 
was a loan and not a gift. If possible, this loan was to be repaid prior to the sabbatical year. The fact that no interest could be collected or a pledge taken if it was needed for the debtor's health and livelihood reveals the purpose of this loan. No responsible and God-fearing brother was to be forced into poverty because of temporary conditions. The purpose of the poor loan was for the relief of temporary conditions that could lead to severe decapitalization, poverty, and enslavement to a creditor. For this reason, the foreigner was to be subject to interest charges and the like as a means of forcing him to live by the word of God. But a brother in the faith was not to be made a slave due to temporary conditions. He was to be granted a poor loan for relief of temporary conditions that could impoverish or severely decapitalize him. If this condition continued and became chronic, then the loan was to be canceled in the sabbatical year. We can see this principle in operation in Nehemiah 5, 1-13. The people of Israel were suffering from a famine. They mortgaged their lands and sold their sons and daughters as servants to the nobles and rulers in order to obtain funds to live. These nobles were also exacting interest on these loans. Nehemiah declared to them that they were violating the word of God by exacting usury on these poor loans. Here was a temporary condition, a famine, which was being used by the rulers to make slaves of the children of Israel in violation of the law of God. The law of God required that the nobles and rulers provide poor loans without interest to their brethren during this temporary condition. Instead, they had used this temporary famine as a means of enslaving the Israelites. When they heard Nehemiah tell them of their violation of the word of God, quote, then they said, we will restore them and will require nothing of them. Verse 12. The principle of the poor loan is that it is to be used to relieve temporary conditions that could lead to chronic poverty or decapitalization. For this reason, such loans can be granted to individuals, churches, associations, and even businesses. For example, such loans could be granted to pay for emergency medical expenses, temporary relief for the unemployed, relief for financial pr problems that a church or association might have inadvertently gotten into, etc., such loans could also be used to aid Christian businesses that would cease to operate through no fault of their own. A good example of this is the case of a severe flood or natural calamity that could engulf a town. If, under such circumstances, a business could not obtain funds to reestablish its operations, then a poor loan would be appropriate. Instead of the state providing low-interest disaster loans to a community, Christians would do so as an obligation to the brethren. But regardless of who receives a poor loan, and for what purpose, the overriding issue is that the recipient of this loan must be a brother indeed. He must be trustworthy, responsible, and dedicated to being a godly man. He must show his faith by his works, by his obedience to the law of God. In summary, we can see that a poor loan is, one, to be given for the relief of poor brethren who shows forth his faith by his life. Two, that they are to be given to enemies as well as those whom we love. Three, that we are not to take any interest or increase on this loan. 4. That no security is to be taken from this loan if it would impair our brother's health or his ability to earn a living. 5. That this loan is not to be longer than 6 years. If the loan is not paid in that time, then it is to be cancelled. And 6. That the purpose of the poor loan is for the relief of temporary conditions that could lead to severe decapitalization and poverty. Gleanings when a field was harvested in Israel, the corners of the field, vineyard, etc., were not to be wholly reaped. The corners were to be left standing for the poor and the stranger. 
If a sheaf were forgotten in the field, then it was not to be sent for and fetched. It too was to be left for the stranger, the fatherless, and the widow. Leviticus 19, 9-10 23, 22, Deuteronomy 24:19-21. It should be noted that the landowner was not required to let just anyone glean his field or vineyard. The requirement imposed upon him by the law of God was that he was not to reap the corners of his fields, but was to leave them for the poor and the stranger. The landowner was responsible before God for whom he allowed to glean his land. His permission was required by those who desired to work the corners of his field. Ruth 2.4-9 The owner was to grant such permission to the responsible poor and strangers, not to the reprobates of society. The gleaners were not an economic asset. The inability of the owner to harvest the corners of his fields meant that there would be less harvested for his own use and enjoyment. Such gleanings were, in essence, charity. But this charity entailed work on the part of those who desired to glean. In fact, this gleaning would require more work than was required for the regular harvest. It did so because these corners were often in the least accessible areas of the field. Also, it took more care and effort to obtain grapes, grains, etc. from a field or vineyard that had already been worked over by the regular harvesters. For this reason, those who desired to be gleaners tended to be the chronic poor of society who had no other source of income. This is why the fatherless and the widows were to be remembered with such gleanings. These gleanings were the, their primary source of earnings because of their chronic poverty. Also, the responsible poor stranger was to be remembered since this would be an effective means for evangelizing them. Gleaning amounted to working charity. Those who needed aid were given the opportunity to work for it. This work was generally more time-consuming and difficult than normal field labor and the rewards were often less. Hence, this type of charity did not enhance itself to anyone. If it could be avoided, it would be, since more income with less labor could be achieved if a person was a regular employee of a landowner or had some other type of occupation. Also, this working charity provided necessary funds for those who needed them without making them dependent upon a donor or destroying their character or integrity. In fact, such charity tended to be a continuing encouragement for the gleaners to be future-oriented and attempt to better their lot in life. This gleaning principle was the foundation of the method developed by the early church of providing for charity for those who were widows, orphans, temporarily out of work, and the like. The church would require the, quote, gleaners to work for the church doing some odd jobs that normally might not be done. The church would then pay the worker a small sum for his services. The amount of work performed coupled with the small payments received, maintained the worker's responsible character, and encouraged him to find more suitable employment. Such a system of employment allowed for a continuing program of working charity for a large number of persons of all ages. It did so because no person tended to become a chronic charity case, since this program encouraged the worker to improve his material condition. With the rise of the industrial age, the gleaning principle was occasionally used by godly employers for aiding the poor. They would provide small wages to those who were in need of temporary employment or who were young and needed working experience and education. Those who were hired were more often than not an economic liability rather than an asset since they were not going to be permanent employees or were inexperienced workers. They were hired primarily as a means of providing charity to those who were willing to work for it. By doing so, the godly businessman, merchant, etc. was able to aid the responsible poor 
without destroying their character and at the same time provide training for the poor youth that they might not be able to obtain otherwise. With the rise of the welfare state, this form of working charity has become outlawed. Minimum wage, workmen's compensation, social security, and other laws have virtually destroyed the ability of today's employers to provide the needy with working charity. Among the young poor, the problem is especially acute. Among urban center blacks, for example, unemployment is well over 40%. The cost of hiring non-skilled help is creating this unemployment problem. Today's poor have no ability to work for the charity that they receive. For this reason, our modern social welfare laws are creating a massive irresponsible and permanent class of poor who are endangering all of society. The only remedy for such ills is a return to the law of God for the care of the poor. The gleaning principle must be restored to modern society. The principle of aid to the poor. The principle that undergirds the poor tithe, poor loans, and gleanings is that God is both Lord and sanctifier. The payment of these taxes impresses upon the heart and mind of man the legal principle that God and his word are the only means by which either man or his world can become sanctified. It forces a man to recognize that righteousness, holiness, and godliness are solely defined by the law of God and can only be had through the work of Christ and obedience to his law. To understand this, we must go back to God's original creation of Adam. Adam and his world were originally created good. Adam was righteous, holy, and godly because his desire and purpose in life was to be ruled by God's law, which ruled both himself and his world. Since God's word defined good and evil for Adam, Adam was sanctified as long as he adhered to the law of God. But when Adam desired to be as God, determining for himself good and evil, then Adam fell from his sanctified state. He was no longer righteous, holy, and godly, because he rejected God's rule over himself and his world. He rejected God's definition of what was righteous and good. Instead, he wanted to be as God. He wanted to make the laws which sanctified creation. Adam's attempt to be as God was his attempt to sanctify, to make righteous, holy, and godly, both himself and his world, apart from God. This transgression of the law of God brought the fall of Adam and of his world. Death, disease, sickness, and poverty were the result of this original transgression. They are not, in and of themselves, sin, but are the result of Adam's original sin. Every effort by Adam and by fallen man to sanctify creation apart from God reinforces God's curse upon man and his world. For fallen man, who has rejected the word of God, there can be no relief from the effects of the fall. There can be no relief from poverty and death, for them because they have rejected the only means by which they and their world can become sanctified. But those who are the redeemed in Christ are sanctified by his atoning work. They have peace with God because they are members of his covenant. Their desire is not to be as God, but to be righteous, holy, and godly through obedience to the word of God. They have the ability to sanctify both themselves and their world because they have the ability through Christ both to keep the law of God and to apply it to every area of life and thought. They have, therefore, the ability to reduce the effects of the fall greatly. By applying the law of God to themselves and their world, they can greatly reduce disease, sickness, and poverty in this life. The primary effect of the fall is death. Because poverty and disease are closely associated with death, they are closely associated with the fall. The payment of the poor tithe, poor loans, and gleanings reinforces in the taxpayer's mind and heart 
the legal principle that the fall and its effects can only be rectified by the work of Christ and through obedience to his law. It forces him to see that sanctification is a principle of lordship, just as creation and redemption are principles of lordship. It forces him to see that man can only be sanctified by the will of Christ, Hebrews 10.10, 10, and that the effects of sin in every area can only be reduced by obedience to the word of God. The payment of the poor taxes is for the purpose of impressing upon the heart and mind of man the juridical principle that God alone is both Lord and sanctifier of man and his world.